How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello there, my chickens and dishes. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, just in case, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if we've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese. So if you don't understand something, just Google it. For those who don't know him, my guest today is as important for the culinary world as Martin Scorsese is for movies, Michael Jordan is for sports, and Van Gogh is for painting. An acclaimed worldwide author, chef, culinary educator, television personality, and artist. He has written over 30 cookbooks, including Le Technique, The Apprentice, Heart and Soul in the Kitchen, and his most recent book, Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple, comes out on October 6th. His TV credentials include the PBS series, The Complete Pepin, and Fast Food My Way, among others. He co-starred in the PBS series Julie and Jack Cooking at Home alongside his friend Julia Child. The program was awarded a Daytime Emmy. He has won various awards, including three honors from the French government and 16 awards from James Beard Foundation. He has taught in the culinary arts program at Boston University and served as a dean of special programs at the International Culinary Center. In 2016, along with his daughter and his son-in-law, He created the Jacques Pepin Foundation to support culinary education for adults with barriers to employment. When all my friends found out whom I was interviewing today, I had to lock all my doors and hire security like it was the Beatles. Oh, yeah, Monsieur sure. Jacques Pepin, bienvenue au podcast. Yeah, merci. <laughs> Thank ça you. Va, ça va bien? Ça va, merci, yeah. Right. Okay, that, that was our French part of the interview. Two important questions before we start this whole thing, Jacques. Since I'm from Portugal, have you been to Portugal? Oh, many times. My daughter speaks Portuguese quite well, too. Oh, perfect. You love the country, right? You just have to say you oh, love yeah. the country. Oh, yeah. I love it. Are you kidding? <laughs> Do you know any Portuguese words? Abrigado or something like that. Abrigada, abrigado. Perfect. You fluent. Yeah, that's good. You're fluent, basically. Your father was a cabinet maker, which required a lot right. of working with his hands. Did that or yes. anything else from your father trades help you in your career? 
I think so. I mean, he was, his father was, his brother was. And, you know, when I was a kid, I went into apprenticeship in 1949. So it's many, many years ago. And uh, my father was a cabinet maker. My mother uh, was a cook. I mean, she had a little restaurant. And at that time, you know, you had blinders on your eyes. There was no television. We didn't have the telephone. Anyway, no television. We didn't have a radio. So uh, life was probably much simpler than it is now. But I had, in a way, I had blinders on my eyes. You know, what would I do in life? It's either a cabinet maker or a cook. You know, that was it. I never thought I could uh, do anything else and so forth. So life was probably much simpler, easier than it is now for young people to decide. Do you build things as well like your dad did or no? Oh, you yeah, know oh, I yeah? do. I, uh, we had had several houses. And uh, now I'm turning 85, so I do less. But uh, I used to do all the tiling, all the marble, all the tile. All uh, I did some tables, some furniture, all the cement work outside, wall, and so forth that I, I love to do. So, yeah, sheet rocks and all that. Yes. Next time I redo my kitchen, I'll call you, Jacques. We'll work together oh, yeah. on that. <laughs> sure. So right after the Second World War, your parents opened a restaurant. That is where you started your first steps in the culinary world. How did running a restaurant in the post-occupation France influence the way you learned to cook? Were there any shortages, substitutions? Did you have to be super creative? Well, my uh, mother was already uh, running a little restaurant during, at the end of the war. And uh, so it was pretty difficult, you know, to get food and so forth. Now, my father was left, had left uh, to be in the, in, the, in the resistance. So he wasn't home in the first year that she, uh, she started working. But uh, she, uh, I remember going with her on her bicycle to different farm, you know, she would with me to try to get food and so forth. Eventually, uh, they started opening the restaurant, but we had chicken downstairs, we had, you know, all that stuff. And uh, for me, uh, you know, it wasn't different. I mean, I was a kid, I'd never remember what it was pre-war. So, you know, my brother and I would go with, with the flow. And when I left home, it was 1949 to go into apprenticeship. And at that time, still, at that time, I know now there was still some uh, some restriction. You know, you still had some ticket until the end of 47, 48. We still had some ticket to buy certain type of things because it's not like the war was finished and we had plenty of food. It took a couple of years for the thing to come back. Do you remember which dish was a success at the restaurant or no? Oh, at a restaurant, you know, what I do one of the dish called Les Eaux Jeannette, you know, Jeannette eggs from my mother. And she did a lot of eggs. When we were a kid, we probably eat more protein from eggs than we did from meat because it was too expensive. So gratin of eggs. And the egg Jeanette was outcooked eggs. She did. She would take the center out of the yolk. She mashed it up with a lot of garlic and the parsley and uh, two or three tablespoons of milk to make it pasty. She restuffed the eggs, put them uh, stuck side down in a skillet to saute them. You know, they brown in a minute or so. She already had a little bit of the stuffing left over. So she had mustard to it, olive oil to make a mustard sauce to serve with those eggs. So I have that in several books. And certainly where I come from, it's very well known for the chicken, the chicken of Bresse, you know, B-R-E-S-S-E, considered maybe the best chicken in France. So uh, her chicken with cream sauce and stuff like that from her, from my aunt, certainly is, uh, you know, a main dish in our 
repertory. So up until this day, you like to eat eggs for breakfast, like a lot of protein. I don't eat breakfast, so <laughs> <laughs> just but uh, but I do. I do eat eggs. In fact, I have some for lunch today. And very often for us, we even use egg for dinner, not only in the form of an omelet, but also a poached eggs or a, a, of cocotte, you know, cooking a cocotte or scrambled eggs with a garnish. A very often other first course, which is not conventionally done here. And I thought you were going to say every morning you make this buffet at home for breakfast and you just no. get breakfast. No. <laughs> no. All I have at breakfast is coffee and, and milk and that's about it. And my wife too. And no talking. So that's <laughs> it. <laughs> That's the secret, no talking. <laughs> right. In 1959, you moved to New York City to work at a restaurant yes. Le Pavillon. Uh, why the decision right. to move to the United States? And what was about the United States that made you decide to stay here? Well, I remember at the liberation, you know, following the tank down the big avenue in Bourg-en-Bresse of the American uh, allied who came down and uh, uh, threw us some chocolates. I remember getting some chewing gum. My brother and I were a big deal. I remember that chewing gum, we must have kept it for a month. I used it, lent it to my brother, he lent it to some friends, gave it back to me. <laughs> we, we keep using the chewing gum, uh, which is pretty disgusting, but that's the way it, it was. In any case, uh, uh, America, uh, the jazz, modern uh, America, you know, everyone wanted to go to America, and I was in Paris. So uh, uh, America was the Eldorado, you know. And uh, so uh, I said, I was working in Paris, I had a very good job, but I said, well, I'll go to America, stay like a year, a couple of years, learn the language and come back. And I came to New York and loved it. And uh, that's uh, 50, uh, what, no, 60, 63 years ago. Yeah. Ay, <laughs> In the early 70s, you had a very severe car accident and yeah. you had to shift a little bit your career, right? To you start to focus more in uh, teaching and things like that. When it comes to job satisfaction, what's the difference between cooking for others and teaching others how to cook? Well, I think I always was a, a teacher in some ways. And, you know, fortunately for me, and I say everything is possible in America. And when I came back, when I came here, I went back to school and for years and years. And eventually, uh, I may have changed my trade at some point or moved. I mean, I wrote for the New York Times for 10 years in the 80s. I wrote for Food and Wine and many other magazines. So uh, I was moving a bit in that direction already. But certainly the, the, the car accident was kind of a, a catalyst in that sense because uh, I had 12 fractures. And uh, you know, as you know, working behind the stove uh, morning to night in a restaurant is pretty taxing. And it's certainly easier to teach and do that type of things. And coincidentally, in the 70s, after my accident, it was the time of woman liberation, organic gardening, starting. And you have all cookware shop starting opening all over the country, little cookware shop with a little cooking school attached to it. Some contacted me, do you want to come and give a class? And I started doing that. And for like eight, 10 years, I crisscrossed all the state before I did television giving classes that became my my mother making things and I loved it and that's one of the reasons I wrote La Technique because very often you know I wasn't going to show how to peel carrots in La Technique but then I'm giving classes and I'm peeling a carrot and someone said wow that's how you peel a carrot I said yes so you know I end up uh, putting all of those nuts on the side and start doing that book which is kind of a an illustrated manual of cooking technique you know so i was teaching classes actually in a 
you you had a partnership with them because you sold some of your china which is sur la table i was teaching at sur la table oh, for yeah, five, right. five years and it's the same thing i was surprised that people didn't know how to crack an egg for me it was very yeah. automatic right right when some course. teaching someone to, to crack an egg it was outstanding yeah. for me i was like oh wow uh, <laughs> yeah, right. which you don't expect but jacques Pepin foundation was created a few years ago can you talk a little bit about the project Well, it was actually my son-in-law uh, and my daughter. My son-in-law is a chef, has been a chef for 20, 25 years, but uh, he started teaching at uh, Johnson and Well, uh, well, about 15 years ago now. And he went to, to college, but I said, you know, if you are in academia now, you should go back to school and you won't pay for it. And he did, he got a master and a couple of years ago, he got his PhD. So he decided actually to do his PhD thesis on uh, that type of community kitchen and teaching people how to cook too. And that's how the Jacques Pepin Foundation was created. With in mind, the idea of teaching people who have uh, you know, some uh, difficulty in life like uh, homelessness or uh, drug addiction or people who come out of jail or So it's not young people, you know, it's older people, 20, 25, 30, 35, 50. And to teach them you know, not to work at Perse uh, in New York or, or Daniel Boulou, but uh, to open a little restaurant and know those basics of cooking and kind of redeem your life and do. And uh, it's been very good because he used a lot of my technique. I have so many shows. I did 13 series or 26 shows for KQED in the last 30 years or so. So I have many, many uh, shows on, on, on technique, you know. So uh, that's what we are using in this, the book, video, and so forth. So it's been very gratifying, too. For instance, I did five years of culinary school in Portugal, and at the uh-huh. end of each year, you have an internship. Right. Do you think an internship can really do it or break it for someone? Because some people have horrible experiences, and they might think the work environment is this one. And some people might think it's, do you think that's very, very important to understand how to choose where to go for an apprenticeship? Well, I have to say that it's quite different than it was when I was an apprentice. When I was an apprentice, there was no uh, internship or anything anywhere. You went into, there was no school to go to a culinary school. You went into apprenticeship in a restaurant for three years and that's it. That's where it started. And uh, especially for young people who come out of school, Sometimes where they pay usually a great deal of money, so people kind of cater to you. Uh, as you come into a restaurant and move behind the stove and start getting yelled at or whatever, sometimes it can be quite a shock, you know. And that's why when uh, people ask me, oh, you know, my son is in high school and he loves cooking, I think, uh, where do you think he should go? I say, you know, during the summer vacation, I've been working in a restaurant, other dishwasher, other waiter, other cook, other assistant, whatever. If he survived the summer and still love it, then yeah, you can send him to a cooking school or directly to an apprenticeship. Before we start recording, I told you I had a little surprise for you. But before we get oh. to the surprise, you wrote a book with your granddaughter a few years ago. Uh, and I know how much you love to cook with your family. Yes. So someone that you know left you a message with a question. Mm. She was a guest on this podcast a month ago. So I'm going to play that for you and see if you can recognize her and just talk a little bit about what she asks. So let me just play that for you. Aren't we lucky to be cooking with our grandchildren? This is Anne Willen. How lucky are you? It's absolutely no question that uh, when Claudine, my daughter, was a year old, I hold her in my arm 
and I cook in the kitchen, make her stir the pot. So she stirred the pot, so she, quote, made it because she stirred the pot. So she was going to eat it or taste it because she made it with that. So my granddaughter, the same way, you know, when she was uh, three years old, she came to my house. I put a little stool next to me. Now she's taller than me, but at that time, she was a tiny thing. She stand next to me and I said, okay, give me the, give me this, give me that, give me the parsley. Okay, no, that's not parsley. No, that's tarragon. Test it. Test this. Test the tarragon. We go to the garden. We pick up shrimp. We pick up tarragon. I make her test it. She come back, stand next to me in the kitchen. I say, give me a spoon. Give me that. Help me. I take her to the market. You know, I say, I need some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? Are they ripe? Do you think those tomatoes are ripe too? So, you know, she touched the food. She handled the food. She gave it to me. We talk about it. What do you talk to a, a teenage girl who is 12, 13 years old with her iPhone also? <laughs> so cooking become a means of communication, you know, for us. And of course, the cooking itself is important, but maybe more importantly is the sitting down and eating the food and talking about one thing which leads to another thing and so forth. So yes, cooking has been a means of communication for me with uh, my, my daughter as well as my granddaughter. Is there any dish that your granddaughter makes that you absolutely love? Anything chocolate she loves, <laughs> <laughs> anything with chocolate, she gets crazy too. But otherwise, uh, yeah, she like stew and stuff like this and uh, she had work with her and uh, she had a good palate. If you think she doesn't like, I don't know why, she doesn't like asparagus, but maybe she will change or something like that. <laughs> Your latest book, so Jacques Pepin, Quick and Easy, comes out October 6th. What was the idea behind the book? Well, actually... You know, as you get older, maybe as you are a young chef, you tend to add and to add to the plate, to add more this and that, more fancy. And as you get older, you kind of take away, take away, take away from the plate to be left with something a bit more essential. Your, uh, you know, your metabolism change. And if you're left with a tomato out of the garden at the right temperature, a bit of salt, the dash of olive oil on top, this is it. I don't need any embellishment to this, you know. So in a sense, and explaining to people how to use stuff that they have in the, you know, in, in the refrigerator or in the freezer, in the pantry and all that uh, has become important for me. So I try to do that, to explain to, to people, there is nothing wrong about using a, a can of beans and uh, something else, you know. And in fact, uh, in the last uh, three, four months, I was in Florida in uh, in March, and I came back uh, beginning of March, and we've been uh, quarantined at home since that time. But I'm doing show with my granddaughter and my daughter, but usually by myself, a uh, show of two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, six minutes. And I think we've done close to 150 of those, showing people how to use all of those type of ingredients, cooking at home in a very simplified way if you want so it has always been something which was important for me and maybe more so as i'm getting older you know so uh, so the book came from that type of thing that i did uh, that i've been doing years ago and uh, and uh, you know to try to help people i mean there is a difference uh, you know if my name is daniel boulou and you have a restaurant like you know daniel in new york or thomas keller you do a demonstration to show people the quality, the extraordinary food that you're creating in your restaurant, whether they can do it or not, it 
more immaterial than that. You know, you want them to come to your restaurant and show the extraordinary quality that you do. I used to do that type of things also, but now for years and years, I haven't had a restaurant. So I do recipe to teach people how to cook. And in that context, it, it's quite different. I use, I tend to use only stuff from the supermarket, the best stuff that I can get at the supermarket, but still stuff from the supermarket. People will bring me a special butter, a special stuff. I said, no, I really cannot use that. You know, where are they going to get it? You know, it, it's not fair. It's another point of view, teaching this way, but that's basically what I do. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you still find joy in cooking, but I know that's a yes, right? I can see that you still have that passion for cooking. Still did last night. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what was the last thing that you cooked? Well, last thing, well, this morning I had friend coming for lunch, so I did a tomato salad and my tomato from the garden now are just getting ripe. I had picked them last week, they are ripe. So I blanched them because my wife doesn't want to have the skin. And uh, I have a very good olive oil, onion on top, a lot of basil. And I did some hard cooked eggs because I have a farm. I made a little uh, lady next to my house who has all plenty of chicken. So I cooked those eggs and I, I did that with anchovy filet on top uh, and uh, some chive to do that. And I did a soup this morning. And the soup is what my wife called fridge soup. So <laughs> I opened the refrigerator. I had a leek left over. I had a carrot who was dying there. I had a bit of lettuce, I had some spinach, I had a few mushrooms. Uh, everything ended up in the soup with a couple of potatoes. Uh, so that's what, uh, <laughs> that's what I cooked this morning. Did you blend the soup or you left it chunky? Oh, no, no, I, I left it chunky. Then. Okay. Yeah. My wife liked it this way. So. so I have to ask you this because several people uh, wanted me to ask you. You had such a long and diverse career. How did you end up in Connecticut? Well, uh, it was actually after my accident. You know, I was upset to York in the Catskill. I happened, I was a ski instructor there, a weekend. That's how I met my wife. You know, so I taught skiing for uh, 12 years there. I mean, it was weekend. Of course, I worked during the week. So by the time, and I did in that house, I redid that farmhouse almost all by myself. But after my accident, I couldn't ski or do anything like that. I said, we have to move from there. And I said, let's move to the coast. Usually on the coast, the, the winter is less hard than, uh, than in, inland, you know. So it was basically the coast of Connecticut or the coast of Jersey because I didn't want to be too far from New York. So it was kind of an arbitrary decision. We ended up in Connecticut and we've been here 40, 44 years, something like 40 that. 40-something, yeah. <laughs> so shifting the conversation a little bit, what was your first memory of taste? My first memory of taste, I think I mentioned that in, the, in my book, in The Apprentice, uh, when during the war, my, my mother took me to, uh, I have other memory, but I mean, uh, this one is kind of vivid. Uh, she took me on her bicycle uh, about 30, 40 miles. And I remember a tire of a, of a bicycle, or the, the, the tire were full rubber, not, uh, you know, like it used to be in the time. And I sit on the handlebar and uh, she would... Uh, take me to that farm, maybe 20, 30 kilometers, you know, uh, walking, that's where usually she goes to buy stuff. And she left me with the farmer there during the summer. She knew that uh, there I would have uh, something to eat and so forth. So we did that several years. And after we went with the, with the Red Cross into another farm. But in that farm, I remember my mother left me and I was six years old and it was pretty sad. So the farmer's wife took me by the hand, took me to see the cow and touch them. I'd never been that close to a cow. 
and she put my hand on the tit of the cow and make me pull to have some milk coming out. And eventually she milked it, gave me that big glass of milk, uh, which was still foaming and lukewarm. And that's probably my first vivid impression of uh, taste and food. You know. What is the most underrated ingredient for you? Underrated? Yes. Oof. Eggs. I mean, I, I do probably 50 things with eggs in one way or the other, you know. If I had eggs and uh, potato and piece of butter and, and bread, of course, can't beat bread and butter. If you have great yes. butter and great bread, yes. it does not to beat. Overrated ingredient. I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe the meat now, but it's me now. I mean, I used to enjoy a big steak. I mean, years ago too. And in the last few years, I have a little piece of meat and I stop and that's enough. For me, but it's my metabolism have changed, you know, so. Probably also mushroom in the restaurant because I go a lot uh, while mushrooming during the summer. And when I go to, to and buy uh, some oyster mushroom or, or chanterelle in a, a supermarket or the morel, which you pay like 18, $20, and they have less taste most of the time than the regular button mushroom that you buy in the supermarket. Especially that I often buy my button mushroom in the leftover vegetable. When those button mushrooms start getting old, they open, they get dark, they put them, you know, you buy a whole package for 50 cents because they are getting dark. That's where they really have a lot of taste. <laughs> they get darker when they cook, but they are ripe and they have more taste. So this, this is an undervalued, uh, I mean, the regular mu mushroom for me is undervalued yet in that way. So you mentioned that you don't have breakfast. I was going to ask you, because I ask every guest, uh, the best breakfast you can have. If you could have something with your coffee, what would that be? You know, again, I love the eggs. You know, I, well, the eggs, I occasionally do have eggs and, and, and bacon or, or ham, you know, ham and eggs for me always. But, you know, I enjoy that for lunch very much, very often. A scrambled eggs, omelet, what would you prefer? Or just depends oh, yeah. on No, no. Sometimes I like scrambled eggs, you know, depending. Sometimes, especially if I do something fancier, you know, with like eggs and mushroom for me, or truffle. If I can have some truffle, I mean, it works so well with the eggs. And serve that on a toast with a garnish. I mean, it's already a great uh, first course for me on an elegant dinner. What is the strangest combination food-wise that some people might do it that you just cannot accept? When people put two or three ingredients together, you just, no. Now, I remember for the sake of creativity, someone, someone gave me a piece of Roquefort with raspberry on top, you know, <laughs> with raspberry jam or whatever. I mean, yes, it was new and no one had done it, but there's probably a reason no one had no ever one done, done it. <laughs> you didn't like that one? Uh, no, no, I didn't. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Aye, aye, aye. Probably turning more chickens. I don't know. <laughs> okay, you, you have the right to say whatever you want, Jack. So turning okay, more chickens? Good. Yeah, that's fine. I'll go with the chicken. Go with the chickens, perfect. So at the end of the podcast, I always tell my guests to sell their fish. So in Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. You know, uh -huh. of course, people know you, but where people, people can find you, what's next for you, your book is coming out. So just, just sell your fish a little bit, Jax. Well, you know, book is very important for me all of those years. But uh, in the last few years, I've been panning a lot. Well, I've been panning for over 50 years. 
and I've had art show and all that. But in the last few years, and I have my friend, Tom Hopkins, who is my photographer. He's been photographing my book for 38 years now. He lives here in Connecticut. And he also shoots those videos that I do at my house. But he has uh, created an art site for me, and he sells my painting and uh, some gigling, some reproduction and all that. So I've been involved in this much more than uh, I ever been. And uh, I am surprised to, that he sells so many of the ones that he sells, but it's, uh, it's exciting for me. People can find you everywhere. So your book comes out October 6th. So Jack, this was a true pleasure. I never thought in a million years starting a podcast just oh. two months ago, I'll be able to, to speak with you. You know, you can go enjoy your fridge soup, as your wife calls. Okay. You know, for okay. <laughs> If I ever stop in Connecticut, I'll text you. This was an absolutely okay. pleasure, Jacques. Thank you very much okay. for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And happy cooking. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye. Did you like that episode? Raise your hands. Me too. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I'm so grateful for all the messages and comments that you have left. And if you haven't done that, don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast, share, tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, and you can also send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget I release an episode every Tuesday and Friday of each week, so stay tuned all the time. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have an amazing day. Adios.